to this week's episode of Meet the Entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Jackie Cameron. We've got a very special show lined up for you today with legendary trend futurist Faith Popcorn, described as the Nostradamus of marketing. Also joining us is Jonathan Foster-Petley, a business school visionary who is forging new ground in Africa. We're chatting about why kindness is critical for business success. Faith, you've been described as the Nostradamus of marketing by Fortune magazine and the Trend Oracle by the New York Times. Faith, it's a real pleasure to meet you today. I've been very conscious of your forecasts since I was a junior journalist working at magazines like Fair Lady and Cosmopolitan, where your ideas informed the planning that went into the features on forthcoming trends in new colours and fashion styles. I'm very conscious that you're probably the reason I paint my walls the colours I do. Well, I, you know, your walls should be eggplant. What's with this off-white? <laughs> and... Uh, also joining us from what looks like a very exotic location near Lyons is one of South Africa's preeminent business school leaders, Dean John Foster Petley, who heads the Henley Business School in South Africa. And this is the Johannesburg campus of the British-based Henley Business School, which has campuses around the world. Thank you for joining us today, John, to discuss this vitally important topic of happiness. Really nice to be here, yeah. I was with the Lyons yesterday. That's why I'm all unshaven. Thank goodness. You don't look unshaven. John, you look perfect. Thank goodness for Zoom filters. That's all I can say. No, thank goodness that you have such a fan in me. <laughs> and vice versa. Faith, it's wonderful. Thank you. So, Faith, perhaps we can start with you by getting a brief summary about how your team and how you've been working to identify trends that affect business and, in particular, how the concept of happiness has evolved from your work. Um, yes. So, we have a trend bank of 17 trends. Now, people come out, you know, January 1st, they have 87,000 trends. That's not a trend. Those are like little, like, DNA lines of a trend or they're fads or whatever. These 17 trends we have been tracking since 1974, miraculously, magically, they've held. And that is the, you know, the floor, the basis from which they work. Now, somebody has his phone on. You can turn your phone on, off, John. You don't have a phone. Oh, you're on mute. Somebody. Yes. <laughs> it's funny. me. It's me. <laughs> I guess. Okay, my phone is up. Okay, so I'll start again a little bit. So we work from this trend bank of 17 trends. We've been tracking them since 1974. Um, and then across from that, if you can imagine, is a talent bank, or we call it like a futurist bank, of 10,000 futurists. And when you mash up the trends with, you know, the innovation that's happening in the world today through these futurists, are they working on CRISPR gene editing? Are they working on, um, you know, skin grafts that create embryos? Are they working on, you know, time travel or Elon Musk, you know, popping off to Mars? We are conscious and and in constant conversation with futurists to see in situ, what are they really working on? So then COVID hits, right? And, you know, we don't usually 
I mean, there is an emotional part to trends, but we um, we we usually look at the technological maybe, but between COVID, the economy, unemployment, um, uh, um, you know, rocky government, at least certainly here, uh, we we have been leaning into, and we've had delicious chats with uh, Professor. Foster Pedley about people's search for just plain happiness. Now, that's the reason that, you know, it's kind of mood modulation. That's the reason that marijuana is getting big. You know, we're talking about not happiness from the soul, but, you know, uh, uh, induced happiness, mushrooms, uh, um, alcohol has gone through the roof. What are we looking for? We're looking to change our mood to become meditation you know, to become happy. Because in the end, you know, people start to understand that it's how you receive what's being thrown at you more than trying to change what's being thrown at you. So I think this, as a matter of fact, I think, John, you can correct me if I'm uh, wrong, but I think at Harvard, the the most attended class was a class in happiness. That's right. That was absolutely right. Spot on. Oh, I'm spot on about Harvard. Well, I could. I was a C minus student, John. You'd be happy to know. But in life, I've done better than I did in school. You know. So uh, anyway, that's the story on happiness, and we're searching for it desperately. Uh, we're lonely. We're even lonely without COVID and being in our pod and on our screen. We're living in a square box. We're fighting with our spouses. Divorces through the roof. Uh, you know, this, 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 don't we? No, I don't know. It depends what philosopher you're talking to. But, you know, there seems to be certain, like, human entitlement to happiness. You know, how come only babies can giggle? <laughs> you know, it seems like, like, it seems like not fair. So I, I, I do think that's the next thing. And then we can talk about what makes us happy now and looking forward. Thank you very much. John, business schools are better known for dry talk on business models and number-heavy data analysis. Why is happiness such an important topic at the Henley Business School? Well, you know, I mean, oh, such a big subject. We, we, we kind of created the original designers of business schools, like the early, the, early, the early designs of Harvard, for example, and after Second World War, when they were turning swords into plowshares. They created case studies that were full of humanity, actually, all and not about decisiveness and, and absolute certainty, far from it. It was about understanding complex situations and making the good enough decisions that you could work forward with. And then the whole thing in business schools got hijacked into this sort of quasi-scientism and this sort of perfect world of theory. And suddenly, if you knew all these theories, you were enormously important. And that is true. That did help a lot in corporate life um, for the corporates. But we kind of split the corporates from life, like we split church from life or we split politics from life. The point is life is one thing and businesses exist to create value for people. You know, I mean, some of that is addictive value. Some of it's consumerist. But deep down, what we're looking for is prosperous societies that give us decent living. And, and just having things isn't, as we all know, isn't, it's nice to have, but that's not proper living. 
So the whole idea of what makes a worthwhile life becomes really important in business these days, especially when you see what businesses do and governments do to make life not worthwhile in terms of the unintended consequences of pollution and species destruction and pure addiction to work and, and acquisition. So business, business schools become very interested in prosperity rather than profit. You know, what makes for a prosperous life, especially when you've got South Africa with so many poor people who are smart, who could come out of that poor quality of life into something better. And so business schools have woken up the idea they're connected to the humanity at large. And good ones always did. And so have corporates and so have governments and so have more and more independent citizens. More of us are creating our own movements, wanting to have a life that, that is good for ourselves and our kids and knowing that it isn't just about having things. And so what's happened is we're becoming more and more interested in what makes a quality life. And I wouldn't say happiness per se. It's like I'm the happiest person around. I've got this big rictus of a crazy <laughs> smile. and Hey, look how happy I am. I mean, it's nice to be around people like that. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes happiness in life is tragic, like Viktor Frankl used to talk about, you know, tragic optimism. Sometimes life includes suffering and pain. Hey man, what is that, John? Educate me. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a concentration camp survivor who um, noticed that the people who did well in concentration camps weren't the wild optimists because they got disappointed so quickly ah. because life wasn't good. And it wasn't the pessimists who could never drag themselves out of the, the, the deep hole they were in. But it was something he called a tragic optimist. The ones who said that Yes, death is a reality, even this terrible stuff, you know, starving, suffering, all those things are realities, but life nonetheless is worth living. And those who had that sense, who could endure really hard times, but felt life was still worth having, was still a fantastic gift, were largely the ones who survived. And so he came up with this idea of tragic optimism and built a whole psychological theory on it called logotherapy. I'm yeah. very interesting, interested in this, John. Just let me get my mini MBA for a sec or whatever. Oh. Uh, so you're saying that they were more realist, tragic optimists? Well, I think that is, in a sense, true. I mean, if you think realism is about knowing, I mean, what is unrealism? It's just living in some sort of fantasy world full of magical thinking. Realism that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, that is what we're trying to do. But so when you say tragic optimism, what did he mean again? He meant that in spite of all the suffering that life throws at you, in yeah. spite of the tragedies of life, life uh-huh. is still deeply worth living and uh-huh. is a wonderful thing to, to have. And those people who could, if you like, assimilate the difficulties of life and still live with a passion, with an intent. Right, I see. Like climate science. We may fail in climate science, but my goodness me, we can't not try and, and being an activist as somebody who tries in, in, in the face of even potential failure, you're trying to move the territory forward for those who come after you. And it's, it's less about just about me, but more about the sense of community and family and society we live in. And I think that's hardwired into us. And so it's that, I think, makes life worthwhile. This is, by the way, in a sense, and your viewers cannot see this, in a sense, you're very kindly has brought me my coffee and some apple because I'm on a on a big diet. So let me see her. There you are. Come over. Let me see her. This is Hello. Faith. This is Faith. It was a wonderful woman. Hi. 
okay. about the future. Hello, how are you? Nice and to meet you. Asensio has come to the bush with us. <laughs> and you should meet Asensio. Football faith, she's wonderful. Oh, and, and, and Jackie is a great journalist. Yeah. Writing, yeah. That's nice. It looks very nice there. What does kindness look like in business, Faith? How do we define kindness? You touched on magic mushrooms and cannabis a bit earlier. So, you know, I just wanted to say one thing about what John said. He said, inadvertently, you know, know, hurt the planet. It's not inadvertent. It's totally conscious. It's the evil strand of, you know, like they say, follow the money. they know what they're doing and they don't care. And the way they express don't care is say, oh, I don't think it does. You know, they're just in denial, but they're not really in denial. So um, in the Fortune 200, what's happening is kindness is uh, raising its head uh, because they're finding, and it's always, you know, mainly money-led, forgive me, mainly, I'm sure there are exceptions, that if you... Put happiness and kindness into your brand. If you, you know, if you buy one, give one away, you know, that whole model. Or if you uh, maybe even put a child care center in, that's very rare. Or are a little bit nice to your employees. And, you know, they find that, uh, one, it, it increases productivity at the company. And two, it in, it, you call it like the you know second bottom line that consumers want to buy from quote good unquote companies. So uh, that's what that's why and what it looks like. So yeah, that's the story of you know for, it's almost an oxymoron. Fortune five hundred and goodness. I'll say goodness. Kindness is like an offspring or a daughter of goodness. Is this part of corporate social responsibility or is, or is this something else? I think it's an overlay. I'm not, you know, you could stick it in there as a bullet, but I think it's a, like a mist that lays over uh, corporate mission. I hate corporate social responsibility because I think they built a wall so defended so so fraught with lawyers, so deep, so impenetrable, and such a big, tall wall that they can hide behind when they say that. It just, does that, does that arise an increased heartbeat or a passion in you when you hear corporate social responsibility? I mean, to just fall right asleep right on it, you know? So, so, how, so how do businesses make kindness exciting then? Or sexy. I don't think they have to make it exciting. I think they have to make it true. And oh. uh, have more women there. Have You know, when this uh, uh, person that works with John right now that brought him his apple smiled, <laughs> you could cross-examine her. You could give her a lie detector test. That smile comes from her heart. And I think that in corporations, you know, it's like wiped out of you. It's sucked out of you. It's all, now we can't say this. It's not politically correct. And, and now we better not do that. And, you know, the best thing that's happened in a way is when corporate was mashed up with family due to COVID. 
So you're in your box and your husband walks behind you. He forgets he's wearing his jockey shorts or your dog jumps up or, you know, you're, I don't call it kindness. I call it humanity. Humanness. Humanness. Yeah. That's That's what I would say. Yeah. Okay. So John, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on this. No, no, I was listening. That's, that's just lovely. I mean, I was as you were going through that, hum, the word humanity was popping up because you could say, you could argue that unkindness is the lack of humanity, whatever it is. So, and there's no reason why work shouldn't be human. You know, why we should look at each other with all this projective superiority and inferiority and, and we should leap to two-dimensional interpretations of each other. Oh, she's an X, Y, Z, he's a Y. No, they're different, different. And so if you bring humanity back into work, empathy, kindness, it doesn't mean you've got to be nice all the time because, I mean, I don't know if you can, I can't. There are times when I'm really not and I kick myself and I don't like myself and I think, oh, I've got so far to go. Because you're anxious. That's what creates that little edge. You know, you... you, Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's what I say to people when I'm not my best or deck is taking too long to edit or they didn't do enough. I feel, you know, to bring, I like it's, it's anxiety and it's, we're in such a rush. Mm. I think that's, I think that's why you can get snippy, John. I think, you know, yeah. I have never experienced that from you, but believe me, I've had those big moments. No, I, I can definitely do that. But, but there are other times when you've got to push for a result. And, and, you know, there's this, the other sort of side of kindness is this sort of nullifying of any critical sense at all where everybody has to be so nice to each other. That's equally toxic. It's kind of toxic positivity. Mm-hmm. As well as toxic I like negativity. that term. Yeah. Somewhere in the middle where you can be your warrior self, you know, and that, that's not a gendered warrior. You know, that is, that is the warrior self we all have, the lion, the lioness, you know, whatever it is, that is necessary. We need to push things into action somehow. And when people are locked into that thing, that cubicle of the mind, that, that faith talked about in corporate, when you're locked in there worrying about how politically correct you can be, how can you go and do that passionate thing that's going to make a difference for humans? And sometimes you need to shake people out of that. And it can't all be done just with, well, please, will you do that? Sometimes you've got to role model it or push or stand up and be criticized for it. But in the end, feet, what you've done, what? Stamp your feet, you know, or lose yeah. your temper. I, I think that temper loss is like extinct now. You know, I mean, and all the great creative people, they just lose their temper. They just get angry. And now we're taking Lexapro and every, just speaking for myself, and every other kind of thing to tamp you down and even you out. So people don't run out of the room crying and quitting. And, but also, the, you know, the passion dies down. Repre- repression is never happiness, is it? No. I can be happy if you're repressed. And so somehow you've got to, the question is, how much of me, how much is faith, how much of you, how much of me is welcome at work? Now, if what is welcome at work is some two-dimensional, some little construct who's ever so polite, how are you ever going to get those people being creative? Yeah. Creativity is a voluntary act. Look at Faith. She's oozing creativity and positivity oh, and sharp mind as you can possibly find anywhere. Sharp, sharp, sharp. Um, but it's not through repression and hiding herself. I mean, there's character yeah. there. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I. There's also, 
there's something, well, just a personal experience, you know, I, I, um, we had a building in my family, a little apartment building, and just a couple of days, it burnt down to the ground. And the people that showed up, the police, the firemen, men, I didn't see any women, the arson detectives, the environmental detectives, the, the demolition people, the this or that. But there was something about them that was incredibly wonderful, just maybe blue collar, not over-educated, understand, like the one guy, the fire chief. We're interested in one thing here, safety. You can't charm them. You can't move them. They know what they're, you know, that they're not going to, like, have a dangerous situation for people. I, I found that just exquisite. And uh, maybe maybe corporate life or leading a corporation is just too damn complicated. It's a lot, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, there is, and it's lonely. And, and I think oh, there's, yeah. something, there's something really important about happiness. I think um, the World Happiness Reports comes out every year. And, and you'd think that um, happiness is so exuberant. But there's something about trust that builds happiness. I think, you know, if you're trusting with others, you, you, it's happier. Lack of trust, you're anxious. And I think Faith is 100% right to talk about anxiety and it's great and unhappiness. The other thing that makes happiness is social connections. Now, the bizarre paradox here is that the happiest countries some of the happiest countries are those which seem to have the least social connections. If you look at a, if you look at a Dane or a Finn or a Swede, where you say good morning, and there's a long pause, and then and then you say oh good morning, it's very different from a good morning, good morning like English, or the good morning, good morning, and everyone's talking over each other like the Spanish, because in Spain you have to show collegiality by showing passion and enthusiasm and, and almost interrupting, but the Nordics paradoxically have some of the strongest social connections. How does I mean, that work, John? Well, I, I learned something the other day that really blew my mind. That was It was kind of like a key to it. There's this thing called Yanti's Law, in, um, which you've probably heard about. J-A-N-T-E means John. And there's, there's a number of... And, and Yanti's Law, it talked about the, the, wonderful, the wonderfulness of ordinariness of unexceptionality, of if I'm ordinary. And it says that you can never be cleverer than us. And now in the sort of individualistic thing that you, oh, I can be cleverer than you lot, but the you here, you're included in us. What it means is none of us individually can be smarter than all of us together. And by separating yourself out with this hyper-individualism, you're taking yourself out of the group. Actually, you know, you need to be part of it. Um, you are never greater than us. You can never be clever. You can, you know, and it's all about, you know, the ordinary person never feels they're greater than the group they're in. And it's a wonderful leveling thing. You, you suddenly, it's not that you have to be exuberant. It's just you work in community fundamentally, and, and the Nordics do that. They are, they are very communal. They're very egalitarian. Isn't that where the whole team, I like to call it, kind of BS comes from in our world, you know, oh, we're a team, you know, can't do it without the team, thanks to the team, when in actuality you're trying to get the race, you're trying to get ahead, you know, 
you know, but behind the team, you know, in secret. But real team, John T's law. It is. And I think, I think what you talked about there is what you talked about earlier is a sort of, the sort of manipulation of the teamwork's for personal interest is all fake. Yeah. And we know it's fake. Yeah. It's, it's like, let's, let's just get everybody to buy in by including it. I mean, just listen, you want them to buy into your idea by including right. them. Yeah. In a fake way. If you really included them, it's like this diversity inclusion longing. Yeah, let's include women in our thinking and they'll do what we want being the man. Okay, that's or no one will sue us, you know. Yes, yeah. the highest order. Another Let's let go of all power and see what happens. Yes, <laughs> another wall, John, is that diversity and inclusion. My God, we could list these cliches of business all day long. Oh, we're so into diversity. I'm going to hire a diversity experts. I'm going to like you know write a diversity book. I'm going to put it on my website. But in actuality, <clears throat> you know, all the white people get together and make all the males and make all the decisions. You know, I, I, that's yeah. driving me crazy too. So and how do we can... change that? Will it change, Faith? Do you see it changing? I'll tell you what's changed about women. When the little pink pill came and we decided we're not going to get pregnant, then now we're getting more degrees than men. When we rose as a, you know, not all of us certainly have, but, as a unit. I'm saying they don't want to include women, but they have to. They don't want to include blacks, Hispanics, you know, the 25 kinds of Hispanics. It's not that they really want to, because truthfully, it's quite annoying when people who think so differently and look so differently come swimming in your water and you don't know how to handle them and (laughs) women are crying or, or Hispanics are speaking Spanish and you go, it's a saying we're in America, why are they in Miami always being spent? I mean, really. But when they become a force, like the Black Lives Matter, that the rising of the black culture here in America, they force it. You know, it really honestly takes a revolution. There's nothing kind and sweet about forcing diversity and inclusion. I I think that's so true. I mean, there was a the tragedy of watching George Floyd die. There was no human being who could possibly watch that and not feel the humanity in the man, in that in that individual. John, I want to tell you something. I was talking to a right winger. I forced myself just to hear, you know, what they're thinking. And you know what he said? He said the reason that the police had their, you know, knee on his neck was they were trying to force him to spit out the drugs he was hiding. So they've come up with a reason. By the way, that's not true. But, yeah. That's not true at all. No. Yeah, but, uh, but we can talk about the ways to make ourselves unhappy. But, again, we can if we separate black from white in that way, and I totally agree with you, I think we're pretty hardwired to separate anyway. I mean, uh, James Lovelock, who, who's the author of the Guy Hypothesis, said, look, folks, we're really tribal carnivores. That's all there is to it. Hardwired to create others and other groups. But for seeing George Floyd, you, you had to see that here was a human and you had to feel, you had to relate and you had to feel shame. At least I think a lot more people than before felt that. Um, unless you had this story in your mind that allowed you 
allowed you to do it. And, and we can come back to the story if you want, because I think the power of stories are much more potent than the power of science and philosophy or, or, or you know, morals to, to, identify, to, to generate change. But that's, you know. Aren't we hardwired for negative news, though? Isn't it harder to, to see the kindness around us? How, how do we change that narrative? Is it going to ever happen, do you think, Faith? Get a puppy. Get a puppy. Just take out a puppy. That changes your chemistry. You know, they're bringing dogs into hospitals and such, but I'm serious about that. You know, there are a lot of co- – the shelters are empty, by the way, in America because everybody got a puppy, and I think it's cha- it changes your heartbeat. You know, you have to get a puppy – hold a baby, you know, the whole idea that's become so hot in corporate America, as you said, John, is storytelling. Where does that come from? That comes from the crib. You know, you tell a child a story, and now we grown-ups, we want to hear a story. It's kind of a reversion, the infantile reversion. So uh, I think that, 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 or somebody, if you're like, if you're like kind of nasty or in a bad mood and somebody's extremely kind to you and sweet and understanding, that can change your chemistry. I, I yeah. cannot agree with you more because, and it's boring to be very agreeable. I know. But, but, <laughs> You're never but, boring, John. Come on. But, uh, but nonetheless, I, 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 I so think that's true. I mean, we may become hardwired for good news, bad news rather. It may be that education does it, the type of education we've given people or type of families or the fear that I can't let my child, my child has to be a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, because that is going to give them a profession. That will give them security based on fear. The truth is that those are not going to give you security anymore because they're, they're limiting and shrinking professions to a degree, or healthcare is transforming into, into multidisciplinary, whereas you need people to be able to look at new things and, 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 and being able to see a whole existence, not just the sanitized negative side, which people think this is why this is why research shows that people consider cynical people to be smarter than optimistic ones. They're absolutely not. It's just it's, it, you you look smarter if you can scathingly put aside stuff. It's much braver to be optimistic properly because we all, you know, a cynic is just a passionate person who's been disappointed one too many times. That's you very well put. Yeah, and and so we have to cultivate the possibility. I mean, I had a story. I had my hair down to here. I was a hippie, and I lived in this sort of Hindu ashram for a bit in the 70s, and I was in, in the UK doing that. And I, I had a really down moment. I was sitting in Manchester Square on a grey day thinking, what am I doing? And, I, and I, I didn't realize it, but it was a low moment. I was about 25, I guess. And now I looked up and I just saw, this is so trite, but it was true. I saw somebody help an old woman across the road. And, and just seeing that act of kindness, it just was like a flashlight. There are, there are so many acts of kindness around you all the time, and we do them ourselves, but we, we trivialize them. Don't. They're really important. That's what keeps the balance going. That's yeah. why the whole thing doesn't fall apart. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it it, it it is a tonic that reverses negativity and gives us a little hope. Are there money-making opportunities in kindness? What should businesses be thinking about as they're thinking about this theme? I think the money-making opportunity is if you're sincerely kind in the workplace, 
your your people will perform better. Some of them will take advantage of that, but they should go if they do. So I think that, but when we start manufacturing and selling kindness, oh, we're so kind, oh, we're so good, oh, we gave away a pair of socks now for everyone you bought, okay, that's nice, but, you know, you should do that anyway, and you shouldn't even have to mention it. You know, that's the other thing. So I don't want to see somebody capitalize on kindness. It sort of takes it away. What do you think, John? Well, there's two words there, kindness and money. And I think kindness has, you can have little K kindness where you come in front of me and I feel sorry for you and I give you something. And if you give that kindness to somebody at work, but you break a policy that is protecting 100 people from losing their livelihoods because you've broken something, you're not being kind to 100 people. Big K kindness is often not seen as kindness. It's seen as really tough. But that's creating a system that's sustaining the livelihoods of many. And we talk about money as if that was such a great thing. And it, of course, it is a great thing. It's a wonderful thing, but not in, not in the way we often think. Value is what matters. You know, businesses and organizations, there's money in creating value. And value is something that makes people's lives better, or you grow, or you flourish, or you thrive, or feel you've got a better life for your children, or there's a better environment around you, or create a better nature. And our money should flow into those things. We teach people to want to hold money rather than use money. And what we should be doing a lot more is teach, teaching people to use billions of dollars well to create value. And money will flow into them to sustain that. And they will make, they will make profits, which they can reinvest or give to investors. But the love of money, or, and I'm not being religious, the, the desire to have that money for me is, is something that will always lower your scope and always keep you in a small, minimal life. And it might give you some form of happiness, but you get more out of building things for the community and others. That's the real secret of happiness. You get more out of, you get more out of thriving and giving yeah. and building. You just I do. that, John, that yeah. the person that gives and is kind, you know, actually their health goes up more than even the receiver. So before we close off, are you going to be working together? Or is John in your brain's oh, trust? A, or how do you? Honor that would be for me. To <laughs> yeah. really, a wonderful you know, place to talk, but yeah. I'm not sure I'm really, I'm really, you know, up for it or whether I'm worthy of oh, it. But of please. course, I would love John. to do this way. I think you have others that work with me. Ridiculous! Of course, you're up for it. No. You know, I'm working with somebody in South Africa at the moment. Her name is Corinne Zoid. She's a rocker, and we're um, doing like an album together about the future. Wow. So I think it's possible. You know, we're a little frustrated that we're not in the same room with the musicians and stuff, and we are going to get together. And I am going to be there, John, because I'm going to go to Cape Town. That's where she is, and we'll, you know, we'll get together. Uh, you're in Johannesburg, right? I am, but I'm actually, I actually want her to teach me to sing because I've always wanted to learn how to sing. So I, I think she's agreed to teach me. I've got She'll help. teach you. What are yeah. you doing in the song? Are you playing an instrument or also singing, Faith? Me, I'm, 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 I'm kind of got the talking role. So she's, you know, she sings and then I, I say, you know, kind of the rapping role, you know, like it's not quite poetry, but more like rap poetry uh, in the middle and in the end and the beginning. And that's what we're doing. She says I can sing, but I still don't have the courage. And what made you decide to go for that project? I was on a talk show. Um, it was um, Carmen Murray and, 
there was a Karen was on it too. I didn't know who she was. And then, you know, Carmen was saying, what's the thing you most wanted to do? Just like John said, he wanted to sing. I said, I've always wanted to write a rock song. And she said, I'll help you. And that's how that happened. Out of kindness. That was very kind of her. So we've become good friends. Well, thank you very much for chatting to us today. What did you take out of this? What did I take out of it? I take out, out that Faith is a very interesting person. And just when you think you've understood what her role is in life, she's come with a new reinvention. Thank you. And what about John? He's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I, I just like to be here. Thank you. You like to be what? I enjoyed being here. That's all. I'd love to be with you too, John. He's, he's and you too, Jackie. Now we should do this again. Find it, we'll find another subject too. Yes, thank you very much. Maybe Elon Musk next time. <laughs> I love Elon Musk. I think he's a planet jumper and I just think he's great. And talk about being unkind and very raw and understanding. He he was saying he just he's worried about the future a bit, you know, not a bit, a lot. And he's trying to figure out an, another path. And his path is like if we can occupy Mars, you know, maybe we have a shot now that we've, you know, trashing this planet. And he's also helping this planet. He's trying to, like, invent solar pa- panels. He is inventing batteries. He, most interesting thing, maybe little known thing about Elon Musk is, do you know who his girlfriend is? Grimes, uh, the last time I heard. Yeah. Grimes. you got to look her up, John. She is out there. She plays like 11 instruments. She's raw. She's wild. She's, she's perfect for him. And she so, makes him happy. I think she makes him very happy. You've been listening to Faith Popcorn, arguably the world's top marketing futurist. She's been chatting to us from New York. You've also been listening to Jonathan Foster-Pedley, who is developing new ways of thinking among South Africa's aspirant entrepreneurs. He's based in Johannesburg. I'm your host, Jackie Cameron, today in Edinburgh. Until next time, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Meet the Entrepreneurs.